This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 535. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, Daniel Glass here. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. And before we get into today's topic, which is... um, the rudiments, talking all about the rudiments, something I've talked a little bit about on this podcast, but haven't really uh, jumped into in great detail. But before we get into that, I want to announce something very, very exciting. Um, probably many of you know that I've been doing a New York Jazz Intensive this year, uh, 2019. We had our fourth year at the wonderful uh, Drummers Collective, Collective School of Music here in Manhattan. Uh, It was an amazing experience. And um, there was always a kind of a big outcry from musicians, uh, particularly in Europe, who wanted to come and attend but couldn't afford to come to New York. It was too much, too far of a trip. Um, You know, all of that stuff. So uh, my partner, J.C. Clifford, and I fell into uh, friendship with a guy in Germany, who runs a drum school over there, and he's a big fan of what I do, and he um, said, why don't you come do your event in Europe? So I'm super happy to announce that April 14th through 18th, 2020, we're going to be doing the first annual, hopefully it'll be annual, the inaugural Daniel Glass European Jazz Intensive. It's going to be happening at a a school called the Groovekist. Groove Kiest Drum Academy, which in German means uh, Groove Box, in a town called Osthofen, Germany, which is about 45 minutes from Frankfurt. And um, what's really cool, of course, the school is beautiful. The, um, you know, my companies are jumping in as they have in, in past years here. We're going to have great setups for people. I'm, I'm actually bringing my trio out from New York. So, and we're um, increasing the amount of of hours each day that the students will get to work with the musicians in the trio. So I'm going to have um, Sean Harkness, incredible guitar player, and Michael O'Brien, who's been with me every single year in New York uh, on bass. These guys are world-class, top of their field, and the three of us essentially will be running I'll be doing, of course, all the class work and the lecturing and the, the, the drum instruction, but those guys will be helping every day with the students um, working out all this stuff on stage. So um, I'm really excited about this. The other thing beyond the jazz and the drumming, which of course is going to be spectacular, but we are going to be in an incredibly beautiful region of Germany. Uh, Usthofen is literally a six-minute train ride away from the town of Worms. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which actually is Worms. If you think of, uh, you know, that that's how we would pronounce it in English. Uh, Worms is a medieval town 
in the and it's right on the River Rhine, the Rhine River, which is one of the most beautiful rivers that runs all the way through Germany. And um, so, in addition to all of the musical stuff, we're going to be doing some events in Worms. We're going to be checking out some of the incredible uh, medieval architecture and. Um, eating tons of amazing food and going to some wineries. There's also a drum builder in that region. And uh, so, you know, we're going to, we're going to be going to visit this guy's uh, shop. I'm just looking it up right now. Boris Richter from Midmill Drums. He, he makes the most beautiful custom drums so, you know, it's going to be a, an incredible, not only musical experience, not only a jazz experience, but a cultural experience. And I encourage you, if you're interested, uh, we've already, we just launched about a week ago and we're up to a 25% um, occupancy now. People are signing up quickly. So I suggest you go to uh, danielglass.com and look under the, uh, I believe it's the uh, clinics slash intensives tab, and you'll find everything that you need there. More information about the school, more information about the area. There's a, a some drone footage of, of Worms that is just extraordinary. So I'm super excited about that. That's happening next April, and um, go check that out. Now, the other big piece of, of news I wanted to share also happening literally days before I head off to Europe for this event is that my band Royal Crown Review is having its first uh, concert in uh, will be over seven years. Um, we're having a reunion show and we're doing it in where else? Las Vegas at uh, the world's biggest rockabilly weekender, which is called the Viva Las Vegas Rockabilly, rockabilly Weekender. Um, super excited. Uh, Eddie Nichols, Mondo Durame, myself, uh, a couple of the other OG guys are going to be back with us Scott Steen, Bill Ungerman, and then uh, Mark Kelly and Dave Miller on guitar and bass, all guys that have played with the band for years, some who haven't played with the band for years who are coming back. And I'm super excited. It's going to be a a hell of a show. We're going to be sort of headlining the entire Viva Las Vegas Festival. Um, So if you're interested in that, uh, I believe it's vivalasvegas.net. I'm pretty sure that is the website for The Weekender. And uh, the date of our performance is Saturday, April 11th. We'll be outside in the world's biggest vintage and custom car show. Your mind will be blown just by the car show outside of the Orleans Casino. Um, and it's a huge stage. There'll probably be at least three, four, or 5,000 people there. So two big, big pieces of news I'm happy to share with you. All right, with that said, let's move on to today's topic, and I'm going to talk, as I said, about rudiments. Now, there's a couple of things that inspired me to jump into this particular topic uh, for this this particular podcast. Uh, The first is that in recent times, you know, I I teach a lot. I teach on Skype. Um, I'm always thinking about teaching, studying other teachers, hanging out with my fellow uh, peers, hanging out with my students, and we're always talking drums. And um, many years ago, I had worked out of one of the most legendary rudimental drumming books, books of rudimental solos that's ever been written. Um, the book is, uh, I want to get the title right here, The All-American Drummer, 150 Rudimental Solos by a guy named Charles Wilcoxon, Charlie Wilcoxon. Uh, This book was written in 1942. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it in a minute. But 
it's a very challenging book. It's uh, probably not for the beginner, and it may not be the most challenging rudimental stuff out there, but it challenges you in a lot of different ways. Um, and I love love working out of it, and a lot of great drummers worked out of it. So I began to think more about rudiments because as I, you know, I, what I've been doing is recording, it's 150 solos. I've been slowly working on and recording each solo, putting it up for my students to check out. Maybe I'll make some of these public. Um, a lot of the stuff for my students is is online um, only, you know, uh, private, um, privately on 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 YouTube, just for them. But uh, it's really pushed me to kind of walk the walk with my own uh, rudimental playing and how well am I doing it and how deep am I really getting with it. And it's had a lot of just since I've been working on that, it's had a lot of wonderful effects on my drumming. Um. And so the other sort of related topic is that, you know, you often hear drummers on message boards, on YouTube, uh, in a lot of public forums, Facebook groups, sort of saying, well, why do I need to know the rudiments? I mean, I'm a meat and potatoes drum set player. You know, when am I ever going to use a, a triple flam paradiddle or a patty flaw flaw? Or, you know, why, why do I need to, you know, waste, quote unquote, all of my time learning these rudiments? So, um, you know, this type of talk always irritates me because I'm a perpetual and lifelong student of the drums, and I feel like we should all be. Of course, not all drummers feel the same way that I do or want to get into into it to that depth. So, you know, n- not, not uh, cutting down on anybody. But what I want to talk about in this podcast is, first of all, I want to talk about, you know, for those drummers who say, uh, why should I bother learning the rudiments? I don't need the rudiments in what I do. I want to address that particular point of argument. Um, I also want to share the history of the rudiments with everybody because it's unbelievable, the story of the rudiments, like so many other things in drumming that we think, oh, that's kind of boring and who cares? Why does anybody need to know the story of the rudiments? You'll find out. It's quite interesting, actually. And I also am going to share with you five reasons, essentially, why it's imperative that you spend some time working on the rudiments. Or if you have done some, uh, in the past, I, I, I encourage you to spend some more time working with the rudiments and why the benefits uh, are are many, and there's relatively actually few drawbacks to spending more time learning your rudiments. So with that, I want to start with two big points, which is that even if you never actually have learned or studied the rudiments, guess what? You're still using them all the time. So, you know, a punk rock drummer who's doing a basic fill into the chorus. Well, guess what, kids? That's called a single stroke roll. And yes, it is an official and formal rudiment. Um, And as I'll get into as we go into this, there's a reason why you might want to sit down and think for a minute about your single stroke roll and why uh, you should spend some time, you know, thinking about the technique of how you might want to play it and why, you know, what that's going to do for you. Okay, so second big point, which is that even if you never actually use rudiments on the bandstand, practicing them will make your drum set playing clearer, more efficient, will improve your time, etc., etc., etc. And again, I'm going to address this a little bit more. But it just because you may not use padded flaw flaws on you know on the bandstand with your band, it doesn't mean that you won't be a better drummer for practicing them. So those are sort of the two big takeaways that I hope you'll, you'll, you'll come away with um, 
from today's podcast. Now, oh, and <laughs> so, you know, the other reason, I mean, and, and I want to sort of make a very, very practical point here. So, uh, probably a lot of you are aware of who Rich Redmond is. He's a great drummer, uh, best known for his work with Jason Aldean in the country world, the Nashville world, but he's a, really a fantastic drummer. He was in the One O'Clock Band at North Texas State. He can play jazz. He can play anything. And he texted me just today, and he said, today is Monday, I'm recording this. He said, I'm, uh, I'm in New York. I'd love to come down and check you out at your Birdland gig uh, tonight. And for those of you who know, I blather on a lot about this gig because I've been doing it for now nine years, and it's uh, it's been a big part of my life, and it's a pretty amazing, um, pretty amazing weekly gig that I've had here at one of the great jazz clubs in New York. So I'm like, man, Rich Rebnett is coming down to my gig tonight. He's probably going to sit in for a tune because it's kind of a sit-in type gig. So what am I going to woodshed this afternoon? Rudiments. <laughs> I'm going to get on my pad and I'm going to I'm going to work on my rudiments, even though I'm going to get on the drum set tonight and play the drum set. So uh, as I get into these sort of five reasons why it's important, you know, for every drummer to, to focus on rudiments, we'll... we'll elaborate on some of these points. Okay, so let's start by just clarifying what are rudiments. And, you know, they are an incredibly important aspect of drumming. Essentially, if you think about rudiment, it comes from the word rudimentary. And it is, these are the building blocks. These are the foundation of drumming, the basics of, you know, stick control, of wrist movement. Um, And they can benefit us, you know, every sort of drum beat, pattern, fill, solo, whatever it is we do on the drums, really we can break that down to, to basic rudimental work. And, and then, you know, we can go the other direction and we can develop the rudiments to extremely advanced levels. So um, today there's sort of 40 essential drum rudiments that we might talk about that PAS has sort of classified as like, these are the ones that every drummer should know. But the the world, particularly of rudimental marching, drum, drumming, drum corps, has become so sophisticated um, that there are many, many, many more rudiments than that, and hybrid rudiments, and all kinds of... Uh, it gets extremely sophisticated. So even though they're called rudiments, uh, a lot of them are very, very advanced. Um, so b- before we get into these practicalities, I really want to share some of this history with you. Uh, and so I'll say reason number one why every drummer should learn their rudiments is because they connect us with our history. Now, you know, you might put this in the in the same category as, say, cod liver oil, or you know, when 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 back in the old days when kids had to take cod liver oil every every day and, and it tasted horrible and they hated it. And they would say to their their mom, you know, or you know, their parents, why do I have to take cod liver oil? It's awful. And the parents would say, just take it because it's good for you, right? So, you know, this is this is sort of the argument, and, and I've been involved with this for a long time because I, I'm always a proponent of drum history, of drum evolution, of our drumming, uh, you know, uh, uh, common uh, uh, past, uh, our, our heritage, you could say. And a lot of people say, well, why do I need to learn about that? I, I play very modern 21st century, you know, hip-hop, or I play funk or punk music, you know, and these things weren't around back then, so what do I care? So, you know, th- we have to go beyond the fact that it's, you know, it's good for you, which is what your, your parents would say. Well, it tastes terrible, cod liver oil, but it's good for you, so you, you should take it. So, the the thing I always say on this particular subject of history, and we're going to get into the history, but if something has been around for such a long time, 
you know, and the rudiments started, they could sort of trace them back to the 1500s, late 1500s, I guess. That's a long time ago. And a lot of music has happened since then. And we've seen, you know, the rise of, 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 of drumming in the military and classical music in ragtime and jazz and rock um, and right on up through to today. And people still use those rudiments in, in all capacities in a, in a classical orchestra on the snare drum on a, on a, you know, a, a, a xylophone or marimba on a, uh, on a drum set, of course. Um, and so if something has been around that long, it continues to be useful decade after decade, century after century, generation after generation, then there's a reason that we should check it out. And that's, so let's take a, let's jump in and take a quick look at the history of the rudiments. And as I said earlier, they, they developed, or we, we sort of chart their development to the late 1500s. And uh, the first sort of, th- th- their first use, at least in the way we think about them, uh, was in military use. Of course, wars have been around since the beginning of time, the, and, and drums have always been an instrument of war. The Romans, you know, you could think of all those uh, classic Roman gladiator movies. There's drums going on there. And um, the Turks uh, had what were called the Janissary bands, which were uh, accompanied um, the military. Uh, the idea of loud sounds on a battlefield was that so, A, they could be heard, and B, they could help to terrify terrify the enemy. Of course, Africa, we think of African drumming. So, drumming and military use have been sort of hand-in-hand for a long time. But in this late 1500s, early 1600s, um, things began to become more sophisticated, and uh, drums were always used in what what were called drum calls um, or uh, cadences. There's a lot of different terms, but they were used as forms of communication. And so, in order to more effectively communicate, the European drummers of that time began to develop uh, sophisticated rudiments that would would uh, parlay various messages to the troops, what to do at what time of day, what to do on the battlefield, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in particular, the troops that really um, developed this and then spread it throughout Europe were the Swiss uh, Swiss drummers, particularly those from the city of Basel. Now, why the Swiss? Well, if we think about it today, we, we know that Switzerland is a neutral country. And for whatever reason, they the, the Switzerland has always, or has for a long time, been a neutral country. So, what that meant is that the soldiers and musicians in the Swiss army were essentially mercenaries. Since they didn't fight their own wars, they lent their skills and military capabilities to all the other armies that were fighting wars. And as such, they became excellent soldiers for hire, and the musicians got a lot of experience being involved in in, in conflict, in battle. So today, you know, we hear about the, the um, probably seen some of those amazing uh, Basel, um, you know, drum shows they have in the castles with the, uh, uh, you know, the, the the torches and these incredible courtyards and this incredibly precise Swiss, um, really drum drum corps, uh, drum corps are 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 doing the most unbelievable things, and we can that we can literally trace back all the way to the 1500s. So eventually, this 
technique and usage of these these signals, these rudiments, spread throughout Europe and um, certainly other uh, cultures. The Scottish, for example, uh, developed their own particular and unique and very sophisticated ways of doing this stuff. So again, uh, Scotch, uh, you know, Scotch drum corps are noted today. They have their own special techniques, and it's and it's it's amazing stuff to see. So eventually, you know, these techniques made their way, uh, obviously, mostly via the British, to the New World, to the colonies, uh, the United States, and. The Americans, again, adapted it into their own culture. And, of course, we had quite a few wars in our early years uh, of, uh, of existence, uh, obviously the biggest being the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812. Um, leading up to the Civil War, there were many, many other conflicts. We were basically continuously at war in one way or the other, either with Europeans or uh, with colonial you know, uh, countries that we were attempting to, to colonize. And so Americans really, uh, I think became very obsessed with this and really spent a lot of time codifying the rudiments, writing them down, creating instructional books and manuals for the soldiers to use. And as such, uh, a lot, again, of influence in the way in in world drumming today comes from America. Now, that said, um, a guy that I've been Really, I've never actually met him, but I'm a huge fan of his, and I guess he's a fan of what I do because we're both really into history. A German drummer named Klaus Klaus Hesler is um, very into the European tradition, and he has released a book. I'm going to put this up in the show notes. Um, Klaus Hessler's Camp Duty Update. It's a fantastic book, really looking at the history of European and American drumming traditions and how they fit into, in particular, particular uh, military drum calls, camp, you know, U.S. camp and garrison duty. Um, and then he takes all of those rudimental ideas and brings them into the, the current day. So that's a sort of a, a history of the, the, the rudimental or military aspect of drumming. Of course, that continues today. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. But after the Civil War, a lot of major shifts happened uh, in American society, and the drums began to move strictly from being a military, uh, having a military usage. Of course, they were to some degree in classical music, but much quieter <laughs> and, uh, you know, less um, forceful. Uh, but as American popular culture evolved, the the drums began to play a larger role in that, in a way that wasn't necessarily just about military. Um, and of course, the rise of the drum set, which which again occurred after the Civil War, made this took this in all kinds of new directions. Um, drummers who played drum set moved, in particular, away from uh, the military world as African American influence came in. Uh, you know, drummers began to swing the rudiments, which is what we call ragtime music, and evolved into jazz music. And today, you know, hip hop rock and roll, funk, all these modern styles of popular music all really evolved out of that. They have a certain amount of swing to them, a certain amount of flow to them, uh, a bounce that is different than just, you know, strictly rudimental drumming. So American popular style, American popular music, as it were, went off in a in a completely different direction than, than just the basic uh, military or rudimental direction. Um, also, you know, 
other drummers adapted the rudiments into theater work of which uh, vaudeville circuses minstrel shows all these different types of mass entertainment that evolved after um after the civil war in america as well so just to to follow the 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 more military rudimental path um well i should say that around the turn of the century by 1900 uh, the, all of these were in play. You know, ragtime and jazz were evolving. That was one direction. Uh, you know, theater drumming and, and that sort of thing, using the drum set and involving the drum set, that was another direction. And what really started to happen was that since drummers were doing a lot of these different kinds of things, a lot of them moved away from the study of traditional rudiments. And so um, by the 1930s, there really was a, a major effort by those in the American drumming industry, I guess, some of the, the rudimental masters, to, to really, uh, again, codify and, and come up with the essence. What are the rudiments that everybody could use for all these different styles? And since, you know, they had come from so many different traditions, the, the European tradition and the Scotch tradition, the American tradition. So they, they whittled these down. They created an organization called the National Association of Rudimental Drummers, NARD, in 1932. This was led by William F. Ludwig and, the, of course, the founder of the Ludwig Drum Company. And they standardized all of these different rudiments. They said they chose 13. They said, these are going to be the standard. And if you want to join this organization, National Association of Rudimental Drummers, you got to be able to play these rudiments at a, at a very high level. So that was kind of cool. There were other drummers at this time who were show drummers. They were either playing Broadway-style shows, vaudeville shows, or playing in Radio City Music Hall with orchestras. Um, or they were still rudimental drummers, names like George Lawrence Stone, Billy Gladstone, and, of course, Sanford Moeller, from which the famed Moeller technique comes. And they were also involved in really writing, codifying, and adapting these rudiments into the more modern world of 20th century drumming. And so that brings us to the book that I um, mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, which is the Charlie Wilcoxon book, 150 Rudimental Solos for the All-American Drummer. And what's cool about this book is it's sort of a summation of all the things I've been talking about. And, you know, usually when people study out of these books, they don't read the fine print at the beginning or they, you know, they just get right to the drumming. But of course, me being the historic, historical geek that I am, I decided to, in read addressing this book, I read, there's a, there's a tiny preface right in, inside the front cover written by Charles Wilcoxon. And he says, this book of original solos was especially written to enable the modern drummer, now remember, this is 1942, so enable the modern drummer to understand more clearly the far-reaching possibilities of the 26 rudiments. And when I say 26, I'd mentioned 13 earlier. Uh, by 1935, they wanted to add another 13 to the original 13 for those drummers who had gained admission to this organization and were excited about rudimental drumming. So they added 13 more rudiments. So there were, there were now 26 rudiments as of 1935. Of course, Wilcoxon's book was written in 1942, so just a few years later. And what he says then in going on, Obviously, the, the book was to understand more clearly the far-reaching possibilities of the 26 rudiments, based entirely on the old tradition of famous masters. A touch of, quote, swing, unquote, was added to give each uh, solo a certain lift. 
that drummers of today prefer. And I love that because a certain lift. What, what, that, what that says to me is, obviously in 1942, swing music was very popular. Bebop music was just starting to come in. Jazz was really taking a foothold as America's popular music and ha- had already done so during the Great Depression, World War II. So what Wilcoxon's really thinking about is how can I write these rudimental solos in a way that jazz drummers who are interested, or popular music drummers who are interested in the drum set, can feel a certain sense of swing when playing these solos. And I love that. Um, and so Wilcoxon's book, there are certainly a few different kind of classic books of of rudimental solos that you can find out there. And I, I, I will try to put a list of these. But there, there are some famous ones that everybody refers to. Um, this particular one, though, written by Wilcox, and even though it is just rudimental solos, you're not playing them as swung eights or anything like that, seems to have really been a favorite of the legendary jazz drummers. And you you know, roll with me here, because there's a point to all this that I'm saying. Um, f- so, in my own personal experience, I first started studying this book with Freddie Gruber. Uh, when I was studying with Bruce Becker, I studied it with him as well. And I remember Freddie telling me stories about Philly Joe Jones. Uh, of course, we all know Philly Joe Jones was one of the greatest bebop and post-bop drummers who ever walked this planet. And this was his Bible. He carried this book with him wherever he went. That's what Freddie told me. And Freddie and Philly hung together um, in the late 40s, probably. They were both um, in in the style of uh, many bebop musicians of the late 40s. They were both heroin users, junkies. And Freddie literally told me some pretty amazing stories about he and Philly Joe, or Philadelphia Joe Jones, as he would refer to him. But Freddie and Philly Joe would hang out all day high, and they would put a pad or a snare drum between the two of them and practice out of this book. You know, it's kind of amazing. And when you listen to drummers like Philly Joe, there's rudimental stuff going on everywhere. Of course, Buddy Rich, who came up as a young vaudeville drummer as Traps, the drum wonder, was heavily steeped in the rudiments and rudimental playing. That's what vaudeville drumming, ragtime drumming was, essentially rudimental marching drums, but it was the first application to the drum set and the first attempts where they began to sort of swing the rudiments, essentially. So uh, Buddy, you know, grew up on that. Buddy Rich, believe it or not, was Philly Joe's hero. Philly Joe wanted to be like Buddy. He actually, if uh, I think he subbed in Buddy's band. Buddy's first big band in the 1940s, he came out front and he um, danced and sang. So he had an additional drummer in his band who would play when he was out front. And I think Philly Joe auditioned for the gig, did the gig, not sure exactly of that story, but I know there was some connection. So then, so I heard about that with Freddie Gruber. I was like, okay, this is the book. I got to study out of this book. And then just a few weeks ago, back in June, um, I, uh, I I hold my, as I mentioned at the beginning of this program, I hold my my jazz intensive every year here in New York City. We've done it four years now. And I always have a special guest, a great New York drummer, a great jazz legend. I've had Billy Ward. I've had uh, um, uh, Carl Allen was there a couple of years ago. This past year, we had the great Kenny Washington. Kenny Washington is a tremendous uh, jazz drummer, one of the most recorded jazz drummers of the last probably 40 years. Um, 
He's worked with every great jazz artist and very impressive. And Kenny uh, Washington, I had several conversations with him leading up to the intensive, and then he came and did a wonderful two-hour clinic for all of the students there. What did he talk about? The Wilcoxon book. What does he do every morning at 6 a.m.? He gets up and works out out of the Wilcoxon book. And uh, so, you know, I mean, you cannot understate the importance of the history of the evolution. You know, if something has been around for a long time, 1942 now is what, 70 years ago? More than, it's coming up on 80 years ago. Um, that's when this this... Charles Wilcoxon book was written. If people have been and are still using it, and it's making them the top in their field, there's a reason to to use it. Okay. Now I know you know some of you out there are going. Well, I'm not a jazz drummer. I don't play bebop. I'm not a fusion drummer. I play backbeats. I you know go out and play the Beatles or I play classic rock. So hang tight because I'm that was point number one. I'm going to give you the other few points now. So point number two is that. Working on rudiments will keep you focused on your hands. And I think this is really important because I think as drummers, we tend to sit down at the drum set and then we are tempted to play everything that's there. And I often encourage my students who are working on various and sundry particular aspects. Say you're working on jazz and you're just working on, you know, the ride cymbal, the hi-hat, the kick drum, the snare drum. Well, then Strike all the rest of your drums. Get rid of your toms. Get rid of your, your crash cymbals or any other rides you have. Because if we can, you know, limit what we're playing, it will help us to get deeper into that, to be more focused on that. You know, and you could send, you know, people say, well, 10,000 hours. You know, if you practice 10,000 hours, you're going to be a genius. Not really. If you practice 10,000 hours correctly, then you'll be, you'll, truly advanced to a high level. But if you you could spend your whole life practicing poorly, meaning you know, you're distracted, you're not really focused on anything, you're not you don't know how you're going or where you're going. There's no clarity to what you're doing. There's no direction, there's no rudder to your ship. Well, then, you know, all of your quote-unquote practice isn't going to amount to much. So, the idea is if you're sitting in front of a pad and you're working on rudiments, it's going to get you thinking about the particulars, the details. And as my students know, I go endlessly over and over at this. I don't really care if you practice a lot of different stuff, you know, loosely. I much more would prefer that you practice one thing and get it to a level of mastery. This actually is going to, even though it's like, well, that's only one thing. I got all this other stuff that I need to practice or need to learn. Mastering, quote unquote, one thing will do more for your playing on a whole than loosely, you know, uh, trying out a bunch a bunch of stuff and never really getting any of it to a level of mastery. Um, so this, uh, there's a couple other podcasts I have that I'd love to recommend where I go into this in much more detail. Uh, the Importance of Grip uh, is a podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll put that in the uh, show notes as well. I'll link to that, uh, to some of these other podcasts. But, um, you know, it's amazing when you just have one pad. And I recommend, by the way, not putting your pad on a snare drum. I recommend you putting your pad on a snare drum stand directly and um, just, uh, you know, letting, see if you can 
begin to hear the sound of the pad. A pad has its own sound, believe it or not, especially if you use a more, of course, classic or traditional style like the real feel, which is just a piece of hard rubber glued onto a piece of wood. You would be amazed at when you kind of take that out of the context of the drum set or even the context of a snare drum, what you're going to begin to hear. It's going to be very truthful in telling you, you know, how accurate are you? What's, what's up with your stick height? You know, how consistent is that? Are you hitting with the tip all the time? Or are you hitting with the shoulder half the time, the tip, you know? Obviously, what we want is, is consistency and clarity here. Where on the pad are you hitting? I remember one of the classic things I saw a lot when I was a kid, and I don't know if people still do this today, but uh, teachers would take a quarter and they would, with a marker pen, draw around the quarter right in the center of the pad. And they would say to these students, always hit inside the boundary of the quarter, Always make that your target. And I think when we just sort of jam out on a snare drum or whatever, uh, we're not thinking about these things. So being focused on the hands, and this really works us into point number three here, which is clarity. Focusing on the hands will begin to help you have clarity. And therefore, then practicing rudiments will give you clarity. Now what, you know, I always talk about clarity. I use this term a lot with my students I talk about articulation, and I want to use this phrase uh, again. I, I know I, I say it a lot, but it's a, and it's big words, but here it goes. Clarity plus consistency equals articulation. So, what do I mean by that? Well, if we are clear about how we're holding the sticks, how we're setting up, how we're striking, what kind of a stroke we're doing, how we're combining the, the, the strokes together... All of this is what I mean by clarity, knowing what it is that you're doing, understanding what it is that you're doing, not just kind of randomly doing it. And, you know, if you have bad hand technique and you just practice and practice with bad hand technique, then you're just going to get worse. You know, you're going to have really great bad hand technique. (laughs) And that, again, is not going to necessarily serve you in having clarity. So clarity plus consistency. This is my formula. Consistency means, of course, that has to do with practice itself, doing something over and over again, very focused. I talk about deliberate practice, meaning take a small piece and do that small piece over and over again until you've really mastered it. It doesn't have to be a lot, but again, what that's going to give you is articulation. And by articulation, it's sort of like how we speak. So when you see a great drummer, you hear a great drummer on a record, you can tell right away that every single thing, like you can do a lot of the stuff that they can do, right? Most of us can do stuff that Steve Gadd can do. He doesn't play extremely complex things all the time. A lot of times he plays simple things, but it's the way he's playing them. It's the articulation. It's the, you know, I always say Gadd is a Shakespearean orator of drumming. What he says, he says with such perfect clarity, such perfect consistency, therefore such perfect articulation that we are moved. And Gad doesn't have to speak a word. He just picks up his sticks, starts playing, and immediately, not only we as drummers, but audiences everywhere, which is why he's hired by the greatest musicians in the world, just put down what they're doing and are drawn to what he's playing or to the music that he's a part of. This is what I mean by articulation. And it is not an easy thing to get to, but if you are on a pad and if you're working on rudimental ideas... It's going to help you get in touch with that. 
right? Get in touch with that. So in addition to the sort of forementioned things I was talking about, stick height, where on the pad are you hitting, getting a sound out of the pad, where are you striking on the stick, all these things that a lot of drummers just never think about, but guess what? They translate in terms of how well you're you're articulating. Um, and so, you know, we can add to that our dynamics, the tempo at which we practice. Um, I always talk about playing slow. People will say, well, Daniel, I want to learn how to play fast. And of course, what do I say? If you want to play fast, you got to learn how to play slow. And that drives people crazy. You know, what do you mean? So, you know, if you want to really have an understanding of what you're doing, you've got to slow it down and begin to understand how you're moving and understand the space and all of that stuff. If you want a pocket, you've got to figure out, you know, what will lead us to that. And that usually happens by slowing down and relaxing and allowing things like gravity to work. And it's a lot about physics. It's a lot about dynamics of motion. You know, it's very kind of a scientific thing. So, if, for example, you are that punk rock drummer that I mentioned at the beginning, even if he never, quote-unquote, learned a rudiment, he or she, I should say, but when that punk rock drummer goes to play a fill, you know, the setup into the chorus or whatever, they're using rudiments, whether they know it or not. And if you spend some time thinking about how you play that, single stroke roll. Well, what if I slow it down? Well, what if I'm thinking about how the wrist is moving? Well, what if I check in with my grip, my my German grip or my traditional grip? How's the stick sitting in my hand? Is it serving me? Do I feel tension? You know, all of these things are going to help to offer us some clarity if we slow it down and start thinking about how we're going to play that single stroke roll. Because obviously, if you're playing in a punk rock band, you know, and you're playing very fast and very loud, the tendency to get by with tension, which is what most drummers actually use as a tool to achieve their goals when it comes to playing loud and fast. Um, and it's not a good tool, by the way, I should mention. It's not a tool we necessarily want to unless we choose to tap into it. Okay, now I'm going to tense up. But we don't really... Most of the time when we use tension as a tool, we do it because we have no other choice. And that's not a good way to make your decisions when it comes to drumming, because if tension is your default to be able to play faster or play louder or play harder, uh, then you're always going to use it. And what if in a musical circumstance you're in, you have to play quietly or you have to play slowly or you have to, somebody says, can you lay that back a little more? You're not going to have any tools to be able to do that. So studying rudiments in a sort of a roundabout way gets us in touch with all these things. I guess that's what I've been trying to say in terms of clarity, in terms of understanding the pad, understanding the hands. And again, you may never actually use some of these rudiments on stage, but they're going to teach you things about how you play and who you are and the sound that you're making. You know, they are very valuable teaching tools. All right. So just to give you kind of... um, sort of two examples of this, you know, to put it in a more clarity. We talked about single stroke roll, so that's one example. Another example is a flam. It's the basic flam. And of course, we know a flam is a two-note sequence of a a grace note and a a regular note. So it sounds like blah, flam, right? And a lot of the rudiments are, um, I guess it's automata poetic, meaning that they sound like 
when you listen to them being played, they sound like the word that is used to describe them or is used, that is their name. And I think actually this very much goes back all the way back to the European rudimental tradition of the 1500s. That's how they started doing these things. Flam, right? Like, um, it sounds like plum, and that's what the, the two strokes together sound like. Today you have more modern rudiments. One is called the blushta, which, uh, you know, is credited to, to Tony Williams use that, um, that particular riff. You could call it a lick, but you could also really call it its own rudiment. And Tony Williams uh, used that, and so today when people refer to that rudiment, they call it the blushta, because it sounds like blush, the blush, the blush, the blush, the blush, the blush. So, you know, again, that tradition. But, so the flam, we think about two different stick heights, a grace note and a, and a, a regular stroke. Um, but how are you going to play that? There's lots of ways to play a flam. And, you know, you could, this, first of all, the two notes can be very close together, which is called a flat flam, where they almost sound like you're hitting at exactly the same time. The two notes can be very far apart, which almost then sounds like gada instead of bra. Um, those have to be practiced and understood. And when are you going to apply those in what situation? Um, even if you're just playing big rock flams, you know, like right? You still have to think about how, if you think about how you're lifting the sticks, it's going to help you to learn that flam more quickly. So, um, you know, how much louder should the grace note be, or rather should the stroke be than the grace note? The grace note is supposed to be softer initially. And that leads us to stick height. And when I teach flams, and a lot of people teach flams, you think about it as you're lifting the sticks to two different heights and then letting them fall, essentially, so that they naturally create that flam sound, that grace note and that regular stroke, just naturally by how they drop. And the way you're going to get to that is by actually how you set them up. Okay, so again, learning rudiments teaches us a lot about drumming in general. And so there's there's a lot of, um, you know, it's just absolutely important information that, that you'll come to when you study the rudiments. Okay, so point number four. Rudiments are portable. You can move them around the drum set. A lot of drummers don't really realize this. And then, well, I'm just a drum set player, so why do I need rudiments? You play rudiments on the snare drum. But you can actually, there's a couple different ways that you can move rudiments around. You can take hand patterns and you can move those onto different surfaces. So the primary example, I'm going to do a little whacking on my, uh, on a couple different, on like a mouse pad and my regular heart pad here. So, so I might back up a little. But if you think about, you know, the, sort of the most basic, simplest example of a, um, of moving a rudiment onto the drum set is a, is a paradiddle, right? So we have, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right. That's a paradiddle. Now, if you say, say this is now my, whoops, that's pretty loud. Here's my hi-hat sound. I'm going to move that onto a mouse pad. And you take that paradiddle and you begin to accent uh, the second and fourth beats, you get this. And it makes kind of a cool, funky groove, right? So this is sort of one early example where drummers go, oh, you can apply the rudiments to the drum set. Now, there's many, many, many more examples. I'll give you a slightly more complex version. Um, I'm going to move my, my pad over, actually, to show you this one. So there's something, uh, one, of the, one of the more com complex PAS full 
full list of the 40 rudiments, something called a single flammed mill. And what they, what I, how I learned it was mill is short for windmill, which is kind of cool because the rudiment just turns around and around. So a single flammed mill is literally a flam followed by three other notes. And it's, you, um, it would go right, left, right, right, uh, sorry, uh, uh, no. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I had to rethink about this for a sec. So, um, it's kind of like a flam paradiddle. Ah. Uh. Ah. Uh. Sorry, it's like an inverted flam paradiddle, meaning that you have the flam stroke. So, if I'm playing a right handed flam, the grace note is a left note, the right hand is a flam, right, is the, is the main stroke. And then I'm going to play another right. So it's like a flam tap. And then I'm going to play two singles. So flam tap single. So right, right, left, right. And then we move to the left side. Okay, so that's what it sounds like. Kind of sounds like a, a flam paradiddle. Except the diddle is the first, uh, basically the first two notes of the sequence. Now, if we take that idea, first of all, you can, this sticking is great because you can really play it fast. Okay, wasn't played very well, but it was played fast. Um, and you can also then begin to move this to another surface. So here's my mouse pad, here's my snare drum. Let's say this is the hi-hat, this is the snare drum. Now I've moved that mill to my pad and let's say it's one, two, three E end of four E end of sixteenth notes. Now I'm going to accent two and four. So and it's another really kind of a funky groove. You put that on the ride symbol. All of a sudden, gives you another kind of really cool groove where you split those things. So. Obviously, we could take the hands, we can move them around. We can also take rudiments and divide them up between the hands and the feet. So there's lots and lots of sort of, you know, you could do the same paradiddle idea. Right? Where you're dividing these things up. So the, the ability to take rudiments onto the drum kit is endless, and there's a whole lot that you can do. So point number four, drum rudiments are portable. You can move them around. And the last point I'm going to make, I guess, kind of brings together a lot of these other ideas. But if you're trying to improve, learning rudiments is the fastest way to improve. And I don't care, again, what it is you're trying to learn. And I would say that even if you're just, quote-unquote, a punk rock drummer, and all you do is just play, you know, basic meat and potatoes grooves, uh, I would say that just about every drummer hits a wall at some point where they're frustrated because they are not improving the way they would like to. And a lot of drummers, this cripples them their whole career because, you know, they say, well, I don't need to study. I don't need to learn to read music. And essentially, they're limiting themselves. Imagine if you grew up in the world and you said, well, I don't need to learn to read and write. Well, you know, could you then get a job that was a good job that paid well? Probably not. Could you go out and function uh, in the world and educate yourself as quickly being able not being able to read or write probably not um it it hamstrings you 
So, you know, if we want to learn and grow as musicians, taking some time and developing, understanding the rudiments is going to help us to get there, right? And one other, even if you are into the rudiments, one other aspect of this in terms of using rudiments as a way to learn more effectively, and this is for any drummer, involves a technique that I refer to as dissecting rudiments, right? So we all in, you know, junior high dissected a frog uh, or other critters. And, um, you know, it means taking things apart, right? So what I like to do is, and I have an entire podcast on this, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but if you're interested in the concept, you can go check it out at my podcast, at at the other podcast. Dissecting rudiments literally means if you're going to play any kind of pattern with two hands on a pad, whether it's a formal rudiment or some other kind of a pattern, you put one hand and play it on your leg, on your thigh, and you play the other hand on the pad. And what this does is it allows you to look in depth at what only one hand is doing. And you can really quickly determine if that hand is weak in some area or what the job that hand is supposed to be doing and if it's doing that job, right? So I've got, uh, you know, then well, then what you could do is if the hand is not doing its job, if it's not playing the right sequence of notes, you can create an exercise just for that hand based on what it should be doing. And that's what I like to do a lot of times when I'm working on a variety of ideas. I'll be like, no, this isn't really clear. It's not clean. I can't get the speed up on it or this and that and the other. And I'll just figure out what the one hand is doing and then I'll do, I'll just make an exercise for that one hand and I'll practice that one exercise for a long time. And what's great is it's sort of like, you know, machine you have isn't working that well. You take apart the machine, you take out a part that's not moving well or whatever, you put it on the machine, you know, you, you, you machine it, you, you work on it, you, you know, clean it up, you file it down, whatever you have to do. And then when you put it back in the context of the greater machine, it will work better. And that's the essence to doing this. And, and so again, working on rudiments opens you up to faster learning. Okay, so those are the five points. I'll review them again super quick. Number one, they connect, rudiments connect us with our history. If something has been around for hundreds of years, there must be something to it, right? Number two, studying the rudiments gets you focused on your hands, gets you off noodling around on the drum set, and gets you kind of thinking about issues of the hands, and obviously the importance of grip, et cetera, et cetera. Number three, knowing rudiments will give you clarity, clarity. So you'll have to think about, you know, stick height and where are you hitting on the pad and the dynamic range. It'll, you know, if you slow things down, you'll be able to actually really develop your speed. So all those things, knowing about rudiments will give you greater clarity. Number four, they're portable. You can move them around, make different combinations between the hands or between the hands and the feet on different surfaces of the drum set. Number five, Understanding rudiments is the fastest way to improve. It's an incredibly smart, fast way to jump in and be clear about what it is you need to fix, to learn what what it is you need to fix so that you can improve more quickly. And I'm going to add this sort of as a sixth point, but it's actually a flip side. It's sort of a downside to rudiment junkies, okay? So, The last point I'm going to mention is that practicing rudiments alone doesn't mean you're going to be a good drum set player. So it's sort of the opposite. Drum set players who say, well, I don't really need to learn the rudiments. I think that 
is not a smart move there. On the other hand, there are rudimental drummers who are so into practicing rudiments, they're on the pad and they spend all their time working on rudiments. That's not going to necessarily make you a great drum set player. And I've seen it a lot over the years, guys that, you know, and gals that were in the world of drum corps, and they come out of that world, and then they want to go make a living as a drum set player, and it usually doesn't work out that well, because it's a very different skill set. You know, drum set playing comes out of understanding groove and feel. Uh, Military drumming comes out of a mindset of uniformity, and tightness and staccato, super clean, super tight motions. And drum set playing is exactly the opposite. The the fundamentals of drum set playing come out of an African-American way of thinking about things, which although there certainly is a lot, you you can apply rudiments to it, you have to focus on the feel and allowing things to happen, giving more space, making all of your um, things rounder instead of so squared off, and allowing more of a legato feel, a smooth feel, perpetual movements and motions, long, fluid motions, rather than short, tight motions. So anyway, that's just a word of caution that if you listen to this and you're a rudimental junkie, you still got to go out and think about groove and and learn the history and evolution of where our groove comes from. All right. So on that note, I want to thank you guys so much again for spending uh, an hour of your time with me today talking about these concepts in drumming and the world of music. And uh, I love it. I've, I've been doing this podcast now for at least two years, two, three years. And uh, I really enjoy uh, sharing the insights I've gained at 30 years in this business with you. And uh, I learn a lot as well. Um, and especially from your comments, I did, I want to mention, uh, I, I did a, a podcast about um, the importance of traditional grip. And that's a very, you know, controversial topic. And I got some wonderful comments from uh, uh, a number of drummers, but especially one British drummer in the comments section who mentioned uh, the evolution of when match grip came in in England, which I'm learning now that match grip might very well have been used as a, as the default grip over traditional grip uh, in England a lot before it sort of switched over here in America. And it's just a very interesting um, story. And he sent all kinds of cool old videos from the early 60s and late 50s of these great British drummers. And of course, I don't, being that I'm an American, I didn't grow up there. You know, there's a whole great world out there. And I'm thankful to Klaus Hesler, who also is is looking at all of this from a European perspective. So it's a big wide world. I appreciate being a part of it. I appreciate you sharing it with me. If you do have any comments, I suggest and strongly suggest uh, and recommend and hope that you will leave them for me. Um, you can uh, go uh, subscribe to this podcast, the Drummer's Resource Podcast on iTunes and all the rest of the podcast apps that, that are out there. Um, and there is a comments section. And feel free to follow me on Instagram. I've got an Instagram account. Uh, put up a lot of cool video clips and stuff. Of course, my Facebook page, Daniel Glass, Drummer, Author, Educator. So with that said, I wish you happy rudimenting. And we'll see you next time on the Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. Have a good one.